0: And that's what we're doing now. One of the questions that I want to throw at you today, and what I've kind of been wrestling with in my own life as I've been studying and going through this book, is what is God's vision for your life? Now, we like that question because it's my life. <laughs> yes, God, what is your, your vision for my life? I'd like to know that. But what is God's vision for your life, and why do we, as Christians, live in one of the most unreached areas of the United States? Think about this. What is God's vision for your life? And why is it that Bergen Park is in one of the most unreached areas in the United States? If you do not know, Denver is one of those areas for different denominations that they have targeted, along with Seattle, is one of the most unreached communities in the United States. And Clear Creek County is one of the top 10 most unreached counties across the nation. And you know, in Clear Creek County, there's not a lot of churches. There's not an influence of people loving well, serving well. There's not a lot of influence all the way from here up to, what is that, silver plume in the tunnel. You know, that's a corridor that God is calling us to care for. That essentially he's placed it in our hands to care for and to serve them. And so we live in a community that is largely unreached. Why are you here? What is God's vision for your life? What is God doing in your life? And then realize, you know, only 15, this is according to Barna, 15% of people who are not here today will come here. 15% of people who are not Christians or maybe they're de church they once went to church, there's 15% of people in Evergreen will show up at Bergen Park Church at some point. So no matter how good I am, how funny I am, no matter how well we sing on Sunday morning, they're just not coming, which means... You're responsible for the 85%. (laughs) Honestly, how are we, because I'm not that creative. My limits of skill, some of you are shaking your heads, don't, you're not supposed to agree with that. My skill set has a beginning point and an ending point. And the church really isn't about just what we do up on Sunday morning. It's not the graphics. We want to have nice graphics. We want to have a beautiful building, beautiful location. And yet it's not about what we can do on this hour on Sunday morning. It's about what God is inspiring in us, the vision he wants us to see, and the life he wants us to engage, not on Sunday, but intentionally every single day. And so what is the vision that we need that can drive that kind of life? Well, in the book of Philippians, if you want to grab a Bible, we're going to be walking through Philippians all the way up to Advent. If you don't know what Advent is, it just means Christmas is coming, right? That's going to be coming, so when Christmas is coming, we'll be done with this. But we're going to be walking through the book of Philippians, and the reason we're walking through this book is it answers that question. What is God's vision for my life, and then how do we as a community engage in a community that doesn't know Christ and may even disagree with a lot of the things we believe, how can we live in that place in a way that's effective? Because, see, as we looked at last week, the church at Philippi began at a starting point that seemed almost insurmountable. The church in Philippi in Acts chapter 16, first of all, it's the first church in Europe. So, bless you. Think about this, the first church in Europe, so it was 1,400 miles, I checked Google before I got up here, 1,400 miles from Jerusalem is Philippi, 1,400 miles, so it's a long way from the origins of their faith, from the stories of Jesus, so 1,400 miles, so we're already talking and this time almost the ends of the earth and this church in Philippi was planted, Paul, Silas, Timothy, they come to this community, they start sharing the gospel and the first person they encounter is this Asian Jewish businesswoman named Lydia. I mean, what kind of combination is that? She's out, by, she's out by a riverside praying with some friends. She comes to faith. She hears the gospel, and you think, okay, that makes sense. Let's get the business people on board. They're strategic. They're good planners, good organizers. She can fund some of this stuff, right? That, hey, that completely makes sense. Okay, God, I get you right here. But then what happens is not only is it this Asian Jewish businesswoman, but then we have a Greek girl, young girl that had been enslaved. She had a spirit, a demonic spirit within her that allowed her to tell the future. And eventually, after a couple days, Paul just basically speaks the spirit and it comes out of her. And she's set free. But realize, this is a girl who for her entire life has been abused. Abused socially, physically, emotionally, spiritually. How's Lydia gonna handle that? Hey, we need to keep the girl out of the, let's get her away from Lydia, right? Because if you lose Lydia, you may lose the whole system. And here is Paul, he's preaching the gospel, this girl comes to faith, and not only that, there's a Roman jailer that comes to faith, a guy who's used to torturing others, a man whose heart has to be hard and cold, hearing the cries and the pain of others, he comes to faith. And so that's the three, that's that's the big three that Paul starts with as he launches this church in Philippi, which means there's something that has to be powerful enough that holds them together. And it's not going to be the preacher. (laughs) It's not the music. Because I can guarantee you Lydia's music and the girls, it's not going to be there. It's not the color of the wall. It's not the buildings. There has got to be something that is dynamic enough and powerful enough to unify this new community and then move them out into a culture that wants nothing to do with Jesus. We sometimes have this chronological snobbery. We look back at the past and just say, yeah, it makes sense. They believed it. But see, that's not the condition of Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony, far from Rome in a sense, with a lot of gods around it. It was a Greek culture. So you had the Egyptian gods, because gods like Ra. I mean, that's pretty, just saying that, Ra. The god of the sun. These were exciting. The Syrian gods. These were powerful gods. And you not only had these powerful gods, you had your your small family gods, if you're a merchant. And all of these gods were associated with the, the economy of the day. And so here comes Paul, here comes this young girl, here comes Lydia, this jailer, and they're going to start sharing a message that there is not many gods. This is offensive. There is one God who created all things. And I want you to take that message out and love the people regardless of how they treat you and realize as you're telling them the gospel, you're unearthing and you're changing the economic system of the city. How do you like it when people start messing with your economics? We don't like it very much. So not only is this offensive spiritually, it's offensive economically. And they walk out into this community to be the first church in Europe, and they did not know the Sistine Chapel was coming. You with me on this? They had no vision for Notre Dame. They had no vision for Cambridge and all the universities and all the hospitals as that begins to happen. realize this is the beginning, and it's starting with a slave girl. It's starting with a Jewish businesswoman. It's starting with a Roman jailer. And God says, I want to do something through you that gives you a vision of who I am and who you are and what I want to see happen in the world. That's the book of Philippians. And so as we walk through this passage, what we want to ask is, one, God, what are you doing today? What is your vision? And then why am I here at Bergen Park Church? Why am I in Evergreen in one of the most unreached places in the world? And how can I download and get that vision for what you're doing into my life today? Small task. <laughs> hey, let's jump into an Ephes- Ephesians. Philippians chapter 1. We're going to re- read verses 1 through 11. Philippians 1 verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace. To you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right. For me to feel this way about all of you, because I hold you in my heart. For you were all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may prove what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Hey, let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you tell us and we can just trust that as we gather you're with us. And yet Lord as we are you are with us, may we be with with you. Open our eyes to see Holy Spirit, would you, through the power of the Word, just getting in the presence of the Spirit and the Word, setting our eyes on the glory of God. Lord, you transform us from one degree of glory to another. And so in Jesus' name, Father, give us that vision for who you are and what you're doing. And Lord, in that, help us to hear. Help us to hear intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, across the board as you've created us in all dimensions of life, Father. Bring us into your presence. Help us to be with you and enable us, Father, to hear and to see who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So what is God? Certainly through this passage, what is he doing? You know, as we look at this, you know, all good preachers have three points, and I found them. They're all there. It takes a while. Sometimes it takes a while, but there are three points that I want to look at. And those three points that we see in this passage are one, there's a mission that Paul describes. And it's not just a mission for your life, it's really the mission of the church. Then second, as you're going on a mission, you're often running into obstacles. There are challenges that you face, there is an encouragement that you need. So the second thing we see is there is a promise. And then finally, in this vision and promise, there is a prayer. There's something we need to do and something honestly as we end, we're gonna pray for each other. And by praying for each other, this could mean praying within your family this week. This could mean praying as a church for this, just praying for yourself. But there is a prayer. So there is a mission. Second, there is this promise. And then finally, there's a prayer that God wants us to pray as we live this out. Now, first of all, what is this mission? So let's jump back in. I actually want to start back in verse 1. And it says, and the way Paul introduces himself, it's, it's actually unique. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, if you go to the left, to the right... General Electric Power Company, if you know that. Do you know that? That's how you remember Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I still use it. I know. It's been a long time. Anyway, if you go to those books, it will say Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I mean, that word itself, apostle, it just sounds cool. Paul had a title. He had an identity. But notice here he doesn't use that. And why doesn't he use that? Well, realize he's coming to a city, Philippi, that is pretty much amazed by status. They love wealth. They love power and prestige. And Paul is coming in saying, I don't want you to see me as an apostle first and foremost. My role with you is to be a servant. And here's why. This is beautiful. Our God is a servant. Jesus said, I did not come to be served. My character is one to serve. Now, he did that in his actions, but the reason that Jesus served was that's who he was. He knew his identity. And when you know who you are, you know how to live regardless of what's happening. See, often in the church, I think the place we go wrong is we just, we major in the laws instead of majoring in the identity that comes from God. God. See, Jesus knew his identity because he knew the Father. He knew the Father had sent him in the world not to glorify himself, not to share his own thoughts, but every word and everything he does came from the Father. He knew he was a servant, and so when he was in a difficult situation, guess what he did? He said, I should just simply serve. Paul is taking that same concept and saying, because I worship the servant God, therefore I am a servant, and I'm introducing myself to you as a servant, what if Bergen Park Church was known for being a servant? Just in this community, instead of being a mouthpiece, instead of being a slogan, what if it was a servant? What if the church was known throughout the world as those that you want to see show up to meet the needs of the community? See, that's where Paul starts. And notice the, the title he gives to this church. He calls himself a servant, but he says to all of these saints, See, you didn't know, you, you thought you had to do two miracles to get there, right? No? That's what you have to do. To be a saint today, you've got to perform two, not one. I would think one would be enough. I mean, if I could perform one miracle, not one miracle, but two. And he says to these, this community, and realize, you already know who's in the community. It's that slave girl that came to faith, and her life is still a mess, but she's learning to trust in Jesus. It's the jailer the jailer who used to torture people and harm people, and he's kind of softening, it's Lydia. And he's saying to them, you are saints. Now, what is a saint? It's someone that knows their purpose. See, the word saint, hagias, means just simply to be set apart. It's not set apart for your purpose. It's set apart for God's purpose. And see, if God is holy, you tracking me, with me, then everything he has and owns is holy because he is holy. It's kind of like getting adopted. When you get adopted, maybe you were adopted and you had nothing. And as soon as you were in front of that judge and he said, you know what? It's done. Everything that family owns is suddenly yours. If your father is holy, you are holy. Now, what does that look like for us? It doesn't mean that we live perfect lives, but we are now set apart for his purpose. The challenge we have in life is our purpose And God's purpose are in conflict with each other, at least in my life. Maybe you guys are doing great out here. But often God's purpose and mine, so I need to see a vision of what that purpose is. And so he's saying, we are servants, you are saints, and here's how we're going to operate within grace and peace. Now, we're going to get to that in a moment. But jump down now in verse 3. And he starts off and he says, you know, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Now, let me just stop for a moment The church in Philippi was generous towards Paul in a way that no one else was. They were generous towards Paul in a way that no one else was. Not just generous financially, but later on he says to them, Hey, I know things are going to go well with me, and here's why. Not because I can see things are going to go well, but because I know of anyone else you are praying for me. Prayer for Paul was not some sentimental idea, it was power. He rested his future on the prayers of this church. And he says, I am confident that things will go well because I know you are interceding for me. And not only are they getting financially and praying for him, they're sending people to him. There's this guy, Epaphroditus, who comes and actually takes care of Paul's needs because, see, we haven't talked about this. Here's the surprise. He's in jail. Paul's writing this letter from jail. And when you went to jail in the first century, there was no wreck time. Not that I know a lot about jail, there was no TV time. There was no, there was no food time. Someone from outside the jail had to provide for everything that you had. If you got sick, they weren't going to take care of you. And there was a lot of sickness and death in jails. And so the Philippians say, okay, hey, listen, Paul, you're in jail because what happened? Well, he, this young girl came to faith. Remember Acts chapter 16? That young girl, that slave girl? She comes to faith, messes up the economics of the city, and they go to jail. And eventually they go to Rome. And here the Philippians send Epaphroditus simply to serve and to take care of his needs. So Paul, when he thinks of this church, he thinks of this church with tremendous joy, love, and gratitude. Now here's the question. Why would they do that? Because not all the churches did that. They even went further because when the poor in Jerusalem needed money, it's the churches in Macedonia, Philippi, That gave money to the people in Jerusalem. What was it? What caused them to have this different kind of vision? Because even in the New Testament, not all the churches did that. Just like today. I mean, we think in the New Testament it was perfect. You know, just Jesus every day and everything worked out. That's not how it was. Philippians, they had something. They had something unique. And so when you look in verse 3, he says, Always in every prayer of mine, for you all making prayer with joy... Now, let me stop for a minute. That word joy, first time it shows up 14 times in the book of Philippians, and it's called the letter of joy. Now, it's not the letter of joy because Paul is focusing on joy. Joy is always the byproduct of something else. Let me tell you, if you live for joy, you're going to be frustrated, unless your name is Joy. That's different. But if you live for joy, to find joy in life, you're going to be absolutely frustrated. Joy is never something we seek on its own. It's the byproduct of something else. And it's the byproduct in verse five here it is, because of your partnership, some say fellowship, in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, that word partnership in the Greek, an interesting idea. Actually, when the church in Philippi gave money to Jerusalem, that transfer of money was called a fellowship. It was a financial idea, it had a business connotation. When you entered into a relationship with someone else in a business context, it was called a partnership. Now, I think we understand that today. When you're in partnership with someone, you're willing to sacrifice because you see the vision. Here's a business we wanna start. Bill's got these techniques and these talents. Sue brings this. Sharon brings that. We all come in partnership together because we see how all these skills can work together to accomplish a vision that I am willing to sacrifice for to get there. That's Christianity. What is Christianity? We each bring in these different talents and skills. The problem is we don't see the vision well enough. We're fighting in the church for the wrong things. We're not moving out into the world as servants. We're not acting as those who have been set apart for God, or those that simply represent God, because the things sometimes that we support, the things that we get most excited about are not the things of God, not the things of the gospel, not the things, if you' can to be honest, that bring joy. Think of the investments that you make in your life. How many of us have habits that lead to joy? <laughs> so often I wonder, why am I grumpy? Well, I am simply a concatenation of all my habits, which means a lot of the things that I'm pursuing are resulting in the emotions that I'm experiencing. I need to get in line with God's vision for my life. And a lot of the things in our culture that Christians chase after, they don't lead to joy because they're really not the things that are primary. And when anything that is secondary becomes primary, you lose God. We're going to talk about how that is, but he's saying the reason they did this was they had a partnership, a unique connection in the gospel. And what's the gospel? The word gospel, I know it sounds like a religious-sounding word, but it really means good news. And good news travels. We like good news. I mean, you hear somebody talking, and you know they're laughing, they're having a good time, you're like, I want to I hear about what that. I want to hear what's going on. When a new restaurant comes in, and somebody shares news about it, you hear it and you receive it, and you remember it because it's good news. When somebody has a child, when somebody gets married, it's all good news because good news doesn't have to be shared. It's just shared. And see, good news leads to joy because joy can only come in sharing the news. I mean, how many of you have great news, and you're like, I'm going to keep it to myself. That's how I do my... (laughs) That's how I do joy in life. You know, I got this great promotion, but I'm not going to tell anybody. It's in the sharing of the news that it actually creates joy because that's called worship. Why do we do that in community with others? We look at something that's good and we say, wow, isn't this amazing? And it's in the sharing, the community of sharing that together that it produces joy. That's why we need to come together. And he's saying there is a partnership in The gospel that there was good news, and the good news is that Jesus Christ has come, and here's really good news, and he's a servant. The God of the universe did not consider equality with God as something to use, something to grasp, but he, Jesus, made himself nothing. And not just nothing, but taking on the very nature of a servant, being found in human likeness, Jesus was found in appearance as a man, humbled himself, and became obedient to death. Even death on a cross. Why? For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever, I'm whoever, believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not come into the world to condemn it, but to rescue us. Wow. That's good news. That is a tremendous message. Even if you don't believe that, you have to get to the place where you're like, wow. If God existed and created all things and he came as a human being to take upon ourselves our own brokenness so that we might share in his presence and benefits, that's amazing. There's no other religion on the face of the earth that even goes close to that. They think it's crazy. That's why they had to make up a word grace and make up a song. (laughs) Amazing. It's amazing because every other religion in the world works on the principle, if you do it, you will get it. If you achieve it, that's who you are. You are what you do. The gospel says you are not what you do. You are what God has done. And you need the faith to get on board with what God has done for you so that his identity becomes your identity. And once the identity changes, here's the thing, the behavior starts to change. If you change your behavior before your identity, it's good. It's it's good to obey God's laws. But I'm telling you, you're not going to experience the freedom and the joy that God wants for you. It's always best to obey God, but if the identity that God has for you doesn't become your identity, it doesn't begin to shift, then the obedience, it's not going to have the power to change your life. So he's saying there was a partnership in the gospel. So here's where I want to take this. Now, some of you may know this. It's it's not important that you do, but um, I was born in Massachusetts, and so that's kind of my home base. We were born in Massachusetts. My family goes all the way back, way back to Plymouth Plymouth Rock. It's really tiny. And all of that, I have eight ancestors that came on the Mayflower, and they survived. That means a lot of them didn't. But I have eight. Anyways, all of that, I've got a lot of family in New England, all that to say. And my grandmother lived on Cape Cod. And so when Melissa and I, my wife, we were dating, it was spring break. It was right at the end of my senior year. I was like, okay, hey, I wanted to see my family home, kind of see what was going on. And so we went up to Cape Cod. And we went to Nantucket. And that's where I dropped her. Now, some of you don't know what that means. I didn't drop her. Do you know what, anyways, it, it's kind of like the pre-engagement. And I don't, I, I don't know, anyway, I'm confused now. But we went to Nantucket. And on Nantucket Island, if you've ever been to Nantucket, it's not big. And I love that um, television series, Wings. You remember that back in the day? Really dating myself here. And so I wanted to go see the airport, right? I had to see it. It's not the same thing was really disappointing. But there are a number of museums on Nantucket Island. One of them is called the Life Saving Museum. And actually, here's a photo of some aspect of that. The Life Saving Museum was this, in, this organization that started because so many people were dying off the coastline of Nantucket. They didn't have modern navigation. If you know anything about the coastline of Nantucket, Every single year, the weather changes the structure of the shoals and the, the sandbars. And so every single year, you had to relearn what was around Nantucket. And yet the waters are incredibly fertile, lots of fish, lots of, a great place to go to make a living. And yet many people were dying. And in the 19th century, the 1800s, 700 boats were lost off the coastline of Nantucket. And someone said, hey, that's too many. There are people dying. And so even though they didn't know who these people were and they came from different parts of the world, they started setting up these little huts along the shoreline of Nantucket. And they were saving houses. And in them they have boats. And people would give up their time from their family, from their jobs, and they would go to these huts and they would sit there and they would simply watch the coastline. They'd watch the ocean. And when a ship was in distress, they would go out and rescue them at their own personal cost, which could mean their own vessel, And also their own personal lives. And they had a motto, which I'm surprised people joined this organization. The motto was you have to go. You ready? You don't have to come back. (laughs) Get that on the website, right? You have to go. And they signed up. And they signed up. But here's what happened over time the government said, you know, we need to be involved. And the government got involved. It's called the Coast Guard, and for about a decade, these two organizations lived side by side. But you know what people started doing? I don't got to go. I got to come back. It's not worth it. If if there are people trained to do this, the professionals, why am I risking my life? Why am I risking my finance? See, they lost the vision. They lost the mission. But guess what happened? The life-saving society still meets today. But they're not (laughs) life-saving. They meet in Boston. They give out awards. They celebrate each other. They celebrate their history. They still have an endowment. They're probably going to be around for a lot of years, though the numbers are dwindling. And when you look at that and realize Philippi was the first church on the shores of Europe. They had no idea about the Sistine Chapel Notre Dame and the universities, they had no concept of what God was about to do. But what happened? The churches lost the gospel. It became about the architecture. It became about the music. It came, became about protecting what they had. They stopped looking out at the shores. They stopped caring about the vision of what God was doing. And they didn't care that people were perishing. And so what happened then was the church moved. Hey, it jumped over, across the sea, right? Came to us. And some people say, you know, the church is in crisis. I don't think the church is in crisis. It is healthy. It may not be healthy in the United States. It's healthy in Africa. It's healthy in Brazil. It's healthy in Asia because the gospel is the reason that people are gathering. When we lose sight of the gospel, the church loses sight of its power, and it doesn't have the dynamic to draw us together. Because the preacher's not good enough, the music's not good enough, the building's not enough. Because sometime you're going to get hurt. Something's going to happen within the church. And if the gospel isn't the reason that we're gathering, one, my personal encounter through that, and then the unity and the power of God to bring a diversity of people together who should love one another and care for each other, if that's not what we're doing, it's not going to work. And that's why the church is moved. And I'll tell you, it's not moved because the church in the United States isn't healthy. It's, it's moved because the consumers of the church are leaving it. What is God's vision for your life? Do you see the vision that God has? Now, just quickly, I'm, I've kind of gone too long on that, but I want you to end with this vision. There is a promise and a prayer that we're going to end on. Because anytime you get in the life-saving mission, you've got to sacrifice and you need something to hold on to. And here's what you've got to hold on to, that God is a finisher, Just as the Philippians needed to know this, he is faithful and he will finish this work. And they had to trust that God, he who began this work, he's gonna complete it. He's gonna complete it in your marriage. He's gonna complete it in your life. What he has started in rescuing you and bringing you to him, there are days all I got left is, God, you're gonna complete it. (laughs) That's all the faith I have in this moment, Lord. But I want to trust that you're going to complete it. And here's how he's going to complete it among us. If we keep in mind what Paul says, I know that all of us share in this grace together. You know what breaks the church apart? It's the loss of grace. Because grace says the reason we are accepted is Christ and Christ alone, which means I can put up with a lot, I can forgive a lot. Because if God was willing to accept me in my brokenness, then I can accept you and we can accept each other even though our backgrounds are different and our sin is different and our struggles are different. There is something God has done that is transforming us and it's that we share in God's grace. There's a promise. And then finally, there's a prayer. And here's my challenge for us this week. What I want us to do, if you don't mind, if you can come on board with us, is simply to begin praying this prayer together. And what I mean by praying it together, you have to do it today. You don't know it. I, I just opened this it's open book. But we want to pray this prayer together, which means at home, start praying this prayer. And the prayer is simple because it starts where the church starts. For God so loved. Paul simply prays, I pray that your love would abound. Now I'm going NIV on you. But I pray that your love would abound more and more with knowledge and depth of insight. What is the gospel? You know, John in 1 John Um, sometimes John's not very kind in how he says things, but John says, if you do not love your brother whom you have seen, don't give me this junk that you love God, this is my translation, whom you have not seen. If you do not love your brother whom you have seen, how can you claim to love God? And I'll tell you, that's what the world's saying to us. (laughs) You love God? How can we claim to, to... to carry a partnership in the gospel if we are not willing to love. Well, to love means I need to know that I'm a servant that's been loved. And so John, thankfully, gets to a place of promise and he says, you know the reason we love is that he first loved us. All that Paul is doing is saying, I want to walk in that. I want to be bathed in that. And he is praying, I pray that God's love would abound more and more with knowledge, which means knowledge of God, and depth of insight, knowing what is best in the moment. So that we might be pure and blameless. Now, pure and blameless means without wax. And it means to live in such a way that others are not repelled from the church. I mean, that's that's Paul's level of expectation. (laughs) That's what blameless means. It doesn't mean perfection. It just means that you're living in such a way that when others see the church, they're not repelled by the church. Now, to be pure is an idea that when people bought pottery, they'd hold it up to the sun because you want the good stuff. And the only way you know it's the good stuff is it didn't have any wax holding it together. And so when people look at you, they want to see a life devoted to Jesus, a life devoted to the gospel, not your brand of music, not your branch of the church, but to the power of the gospel that transforms lives. When they hold us up to the light, there's one thing that matters, and that is the gospel in Jesus Christ. So that we might live in a way that we are not detracting from the church, But rather, we are adding to the church for the purpose that the righteousness of God, the fruit of righteousness, that's only something that God can do, would grow in us to the glory and the praise of God. What are we praying? Father, help us to love well. Sometimes I need to wake up on a Monday and my Mondays are not good and just say, God, just help me today to love well, which means I got to be reminded I'm a servant, I need to be encouraged that I'm a saint. I don't feel saintly at the moment, but God has set me apart to love like this. And when, when I go out into the community, i got to realize that there is a mission that God has sent me on, a partnership that I have with you and us together for the gospel so that my love might abound, so that we might begin to change. And as we do that, we are able to encounter a society that doesn't want anything to do with us. It's not happy, just like they weren't happy in Philippi. And yet the compelling power of the message of Jesus alongside the church of Jesus, that's what Evergreen needs to see. It's what Idaho Springs needs to see. It's what Silver Plume needs to see. It's what our world needs to see. And unfortunately, it's not what they're often seeing. So let me pray for us as we, as we close. Father, I want to ask. For those of us gathered this morning, that our love would abound more and more with knowledge and depth of insight. I want to ask, Father, that you would show us how deep and wide and long and high is the love of Christ. And that we would know this love that surpasses understanding. And Lord, through knowing your love and knowing who you are, would you purify us? Lord, there's a lot of wax in my heart. Lord, we want to pretend and perform. But when we allow the wax to be melted in the weight of your glory, there is healing and wholeness for our marriages, for our homes. Father, for our lives and what we're pursuing in life, that we may live a blameless life, not perfect, but one that doesn't detract from what you're doing in the world. Lord, I pray for us at Bergen Park Church that the fruit that we produce would be the fruit of righteousness that comes through jesus christ i can't do it would you lead us to a place of desperation father would we be so burdened that there are those off our shores that just do not know you they have not seen the majesty of the gospel they've not seen what angels long to look into they haven't seen the beauty of god they have not declared how the heavens declare the glory of god and the skies proclaim the work of your hands And yet, Father, we are fearfully, wonderfully made, redeemed to live to your glory. And so, Father, would you cast a vision over us, our families, over our lives that extends so far beyond us that it changes our identity, it changes how we live. And Lord, it gives us a new power from which you desire to work. Help us, Lord, and may we be submitted. May we be submitted to the direction you take us in. In Jesus' name.